Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Nathan McIrie, Wallace, kia ora, welcome, good to talk to you again. Kia ora, Catherine, how are you? Good, thank you. We're going to talk about the big issue of teaching children how to think versus teaching them to pass an assessment or test. Huge. Does our curriculum teach young people skills they can meaningfully apply to the real world? And does it foster innovation and creativity? Nathan, of course, is educator and founder of X Factor Education. And it's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Nathan. Cheers, Catherine. Um, this is a challenge for parents with the way testing has become ever more prominent uh, in our school system, primary and secondary. Yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, how do you approach, approach this from a, from a parent's point of view to sort of be the antidote in some ways or to ensure, <clears throat> ensure that the test doesn't become the, the, the be-all and end-all? Yeah, I think it is about emphasis. I mean, a lot of parents now think that national standards is the New Zealand curriculum. So they think that it's about um, passing the tests, you know, getting to a certain reading age and a certain writing age. Whereas really our national curriculum is a document called, for primary schools, it's called Key Competencies. In early childhood it's Tafariki, but basically I wanted people to understand that Key Competencies, the actual curriculum, is does, is brought about by research, evidence-based practice, it's designed by teachers, it's been implemented in classrooms and refined, so it's really a good example of the best quality of research. And so we've got a really good strong curriculum. But then on top of that, you get an assessment structure like national standards that's imposed over the top of that, that says every child's supposed to be recognising this many letters by this age and this many words by this age. And I think what's happening in New Zealand is teachers are feeling the push to teach to the national standards and get the kids ready for that test, rather than talk, and then teaching to the evidence-based document, the key competencies. So many teachers would say, and I suspect you won't disagree, that the curriculum and the amount of testing, the amount of testing, because we've always had testing in primary mm-hmm. schools, yep. but the amount of testing is beginning to come into conflict. I think it is right across our education system. I mean, of course, we're not against testing. You have to have assessment. You want you want to be able to identify early when students are struggling and to be able to put those resources in place. But that's not the same as letting assessment lead the curriculum. I mean, right across the board, I look in uh, primary school, and like we just said about national standards, parents getting so concerned about that they think it is the curriculum. We've got um, NCEA at the um, senior level, which you know places lots of students, um, vulnerable adolescents, under a whole lot of stress and a really vulnerable age. They're beginning at secondary level, I think, to look at ways of easing up on the volume of assessment. I know some principals mm-hmm. are anyway, and I think there's also been some conversations with, with the Ministry about that. But yep. let's, be, let's begin at the beginning of, this, of the school journey. Mm-hmm. If your child is in primary school, if you are in a system where the testing's being done, yep. what can you do to encourage... Uh, the kind of learning that you're talking about and the kind of enthusiasm for learning and mm-hmm. the kind of curiosity to, as I said, buffer what might be going on with oh, so-and-so got this mark or where am I in, in, in my you know, assessment or whatever. You, mm. you, you, can, you set the tone as the parent, don't you? I think, you see, I think the school sets the tone as well. But I mean, the parent sets the tone too, but I think a lot of that is in the first couple of years of school. 
Um, like you're saying, we're seeing innovation in secondary schools where people are trying to reduce the amount of assessment. You're seeing that same innovation in primary schools where people are really pulling back from the national standards in the first two years of school. We've talked about that on the show before, Catherine, how um, really under the age of seven you're meeting the needs of your limbic system, your emotional brain, and it's really your attitudes towards your learning and your self-esteem that really matter under that age. So I think if the schools get it right in the first few years that the kids go into school and really build up that love for learning, um, that, that creativity, that diversity of thinking, it's not such a bad thing, the assessments and the national standards, once the children are getting up to nine and ten, they're much more developmentally appropriate. Should you be talking to the teacher about this, about your approach? Because the thing with uh, teachers also is that they've got their in the system, right? Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and, and is the way you signal what you're wanting for, for your child, and yep. uh, rather than being, you know, where were they at last week and where will they be next week? Yeah, that's right. Can, can you, in your, um, in, in, your, in your initial relationship with the teacher, just say, look, here's what I'm looking for, here's what matters to me. Absolutely. And, and try and open up a little bit of... Of freedom about that? Yep, I think that's a really smart thing to do because you're right, they're under the same pressure. You know, they are, I mean, they've been to teachers' college, they understand human development, they understand the zone of proximal development and how children aren't supposed to be pushed outside of that. But they're, they're in the system as well. They've got to report on those national standards. So the parent's saying to the um, teacher really clearly, that's not what I value, especially under that seven year old age group. What I value is their love of learning, making that really explicit. I think we've got to make that really explicit to the kids too, though. You know, I think it's damaging when we're asking a six-year-old what reading group they got up to when really in that age we should be encouraging a love of learning. So you often say to people, a more appropriate question to a six-year-old, you don't want to ask right and wrong answers and things that make them think in a black and white way. You want to ask creative, diverse, open-ended questions that don't have any right or wrong answer. The, you know, what does the tooth fury look like? is a question that um, you can't get a wrong answer to. And it encourages that right brain diversity of thinking. On the question with teachers as well, mm-hmm. conversely, the worst thing you can do is to be obsessed and indicate you're going to be, you know, lurking at the gate every third week or, or second month to find out where your child's at. Yep. Um, and, and again, is it helpful to sort of set the tone in that relationship to say, look, I, I do want to know, but it doesn't have to be the, the, the half mark or, or, or the tick box. Yep. I think that's got to be put in context too of that, you know, the research uses this average child. So when we're going against, you know, comparing to the national standards, we're going on the average child. A little bit of understanding of human development helps you to understand whether that's realistic hope or not. You know, what I'm often teaching to people is if you've got a firstborn girl, there's probably every chance that she's passing her national standards and you feel like a really good parent. If you've got a boy who's not the firstborn, far more chance he's in reading recovery and you're feeling like a bad parent for not having done more homework. Yet if you understood human development then you'd understand, well, a boy who's not the firstborn, we wouldn't expect to be leading the um, the milestones. You know, we would expect them to be sort of at the back end of that and a firstborn girl at the start. So worth getting educated yourself in, in some ways. Um, on the zone of proximal development, remind me what that's about for youngies. Um, that's just about the fact that there's how much a child can do by themselves because, you know, they don't always need a teacher. They can explore and interact with their environment and they can learn themselves and teach themselves. Um, but then there's the difference between they get to a ceiling of what they can do by themselves and then there's how much further a more able-bodied person can take them. That's their zone of proximal development, the difference between what they could do by themselves and how much further you can extend them with help. And the danger with children is you don't want to extend them beyond their zone of proximal development. If you put you know, children beyond what they're capable of doing developmentally and there's just no way they're going to achieve it, then they're just overwhelmed with feelings of um, helplessness and hopelessness and they disengage and often brings about misbehaviour. 
It's an issue, isn't it, that the desire for young children in particular to please. Later in life, you know, adolescence, we've talked about that time that you've got to accept the fact your child's trying to push away. Yep. You're trying to contravene everything you say. But at that young age, that they want to please. And, and I know this is where uh, the risk is around children, um, you know, trying to locate an answer that's going to work rather than, than, than how to approach a problem openly, as you say, and how to think. Yep. What are some other things you can do in the home environment, even in the way you talk to them, that encourages that kind of exploratory thinking, curiosity, mm-hmm. problem solving? Yeah, I think it's um, letting the child lead the play. They're actually experts at doing that. It's because we jump in as adults and try and sort of use testing questions and a lot of the strategies that we naturally use as an adult, the research would say, are really lousy strategies. You know, testing someone, what colour is this? Um, Unless you're pretty sure the person knows the answer, that's just setting them up for low self-esteem and you don't hear adults doing that to each other in conversation. So I think it's having an environment where the adult learns to respond to the child and let the child lead the play. And they will usually take it to really creative, um, diverse areas. So it's changing the way the adult interacts. Stop taking charge and start learning how to follow. I mean, this is going to get more important as the digital uh, digital curriculum comes in as well. And that has been... Um, uh, mooted as being about some of the underlying cognitive skills or conceptual skills rather than use this bit of equipment or that bit of equipment. Yep. Uh, but again, even as we move into that environment, what is it fundamentally that you want kids, the skills you want these kids developing, as you say, in that first half of primary school? Yeah. Again, is it, is, it, is it curiosity? And again, is it if I do this, what, what, what will happen? Yep. Um, and, and imagining, yeah? Yeah, it is. It's quite literally that limbic system in your brain that underpins and is the foundation for the frontal cortex. You know, all that frontal cortex stuff we want, the higher intelligence, is underpinned by this love of learning, this passion of learning, this desire to know more, and a sense of confidence in your ability to do that. And really, you're forming that under seven. You know, if you're constantly put in a right-wrong environment and you're experiencing getting the wrong answer... It um, you know undermines that confidence, undermines your ability to learn the rest of your life. What about in, at the upper echelons of, of primary school? As you're saying, the testing can become more useful at that stage. But given mm-hmm. that transition into secondary schools' demands or colleges' demands as they are at the moment, yep. what are some what's some of the advice you would give to those parents whose children are getting to eleven and twelve? They're needing to prepare for that change but you're wanting to keep that magic alive, that the, the people skills alive, the curiosity mm-hmm. alive, yep. uh, and, and the preparedness to make mistakes and take risks. Yeah. I think be very wary of that idea of preparing for the future. I think parents often are preparing their children for their next stage of development, and then you're at risk of not meeting the, the, you know, the stage they're at right now. I would often joke with parents is, you know, how many of you spend the weekend practising with a Zimmer frame for when you're 85 and you may need it? You know, not really anyone does that. Yet with children, you know, when they're three and four, we're obsessed about getting them ready for school, so start doing literacy and numeracy. When they're 11, we want to get them ready for NCEA by sitting them in rows and giving them instruction. I think luckily we've still got, in the upper echelons of primary school, the teacher, well, they've still got to do masses of reporting and accountability, do have a wee bit more freedom to be doing... um, things like school productions and what I think of as more right-brain things, things that really bring all those skills and the curriculum together. You learn all these sort of left-brain skills and procedures and you've got a list of skills, but you need to be able to bring them together and apply them in a meaningful way. 
And is I it think... also is it also even in busy lives a matter of just doing something for the hell of it? Because I recall again talking to the to the secondary school principal who said, "Look, you know they've got kids in their class asking the teacher, is this being assessed? If not, we don't want to do it." Yeah, and and we'll, we'll we'll talk about the navigating of the system in secondary school now. Yeah, but but are you also part of this part of what the what the caregiver can bring to the picture is let's just do this for the hell of it. Let's do this. For yep. the fun of it, even mm. when everyone is very busy and on a schedule. Yeah, absolutely. Just that, I mean, that is play, really, in some ways, isn't it? It's that spontaneous do it for the hell of it. It doesn't necessarily have a purpose or an outcome. It's just doing it for the experience. In secondary school, then, and as we said, they really are navigating a system. What will you do to help? Mm. What will you do to not help? Is, is, is it a case of easing up on, on the number of excellences that... That you're going to stick on Facebook, yep. for example, or, or what? I think a big realisation for parents is that the people who get all of the excellences at secondary school are not the people who go on to be the great leaders and innovators and the most successful in society. In fact, there's a, a principle in the research called first in school, last in life, where there is a um, statistical correlation with people who get the ducks of school go on to do remarkably nothing most times. Um, what it's saying is that if you're really successful at school, you've learned to be very compliant You've learnt to jump through the hoops. You've learnt to do exactly as you're told in order to do well in the school environment. Whereas when you go out into the workforce, actually, what people are increasingly wanting is innovation, thinking outside the square. Um, yeah, I don't know if I explained that, but can you see, understand the oh, correlation I, I, I there? Totally under, the more compliance yeah, the more and compliant following the are. rules yeah. is, is not necessarily the skill set that's needed. But I'm interested in that in your relationship with kids full stop at that age because... Mm -hmm. The whole idea of discipline, the whole idea of um, this is the way we do it around here, for example. Yep. To, to what extent do you need to foster healthy arguments with your kids, healthy debates with your kids, uh, and, yep. and let them win some of them? Let, let them let them let them stand up and challenge status quo. Yep. Uh, and and is, do you need to come at that from a parent a, a position of confidence sometimes as a parent? Mm -hmm. You don't want to create mayhem for the whole household no. and some sort of little boss who runs the place. But do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. you want to have that um, environment where the child can um, articulate their ideas and put their ideas out there and, um, and debate them with someone else or share them with someone else and get their ideas extended. And that's what you see in the research. Um, kids that are coming from homes that have these interpersonal skills that the employers are saying are missing from graduates, um, they come from homes where, especially the research around dinner table stuff and dinner table conversation, they have exactly those rich conversations. It's not mum and dad saying, learn this and learn this, this is the answer, but it's asking and developing that ability to think and articulate. It's why, if you're saying we shouldn't be going here on holiday, but we should be going here, or we shouldn't be doing it this way or leaving it this time, yep. why? And yeah. even if they end up losing, yep. <laughs> at least get into the act yeah. I mean, of, of negotiating and, and of having the conversation. We had a big conversation about being a vegan recently, where one of my children wants to be a vegan. So there was lots of debating around that that got really in-depth around the rights of animals, which then brought up the rights of plants and trees. <laughs> um, yeah, There's no right and wrong answer there, but it allows Were you a... the plants and trees person? I yeah, can... <laughs> I was. I just wanted to, I wanted you to need give to listen advocate. to yesterday's interview about <laughs> right. the guy who went and spent time with 12 trees around the world. You know, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I've just read a book about trees. I'm all into trees at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, isn't it? It's got old, it's got old sort of feisty interaction it is, um, yeah. and, and the ability to argue, argue your case. Yep. What, what else are... are employers saying about what they're seeing in graduates that's concerning them? Um, that lack of interpersonal skill and that ability to relate to other people. It seems to be a fluke. You either come from a home where you learnt those skills from your parents, and if you didn't, it's not as likely you're going to get it from school. 
because you kind of build up all of those things in more the right brain curriculum areas. Things like drama, um, music, um, health. These are subjects that are not traditionally given high status in the curriculum. The stuff that you sit down and do by yourself, like calculus and science, tends to be given a higher status. So New Zealanders want to focus their children on these high status subjects. Whereas when you look around the world internationally at education, um, you know, the countries that tend to be at the top of the PISA scores and stuff are ones that value both left and right brain education. You know, the three countries that traditionally sort of produce the top mathematicians, um, I think, what are they, Hungary, Netherlands and Japan? Radically different cultures, but um, all have compulsory music education all the way through. So in that way, they're exercising the right-hand brain, which actually makes them better at a sort of a left-brain function like maths. Whereas in New Zealand, we want to specialise nice and early. So I think for parents to know to value those um, extracurricular things that are now currently in danger in New Zealand of being seen as a waste of time and getting away from your assessments and your um, what's going to be employable skills, but actually um, they're the skills that make you employable right across the board. Again, you can set the tone. You can't necessarily change the education system. You can't necessarily do it overnight That's right. if you want to, but you're dealing with what you're dealing with, but you set the tone, don't you? Mm-hmm. Do yeah, you absolutely. value a kid... You know, um, dare I say it, taking taking a couple of days off to go and do some event or value yep. them being allowed out late one night to have some kind of, um, uh, you know, some kind of experience or be involved in something? Or are yep. you always at them? Where are you with this test that was due at 9.30 and whatever and the other yeah. six things due that day? You, c- you can set the tone for what's okay Absolutely. and what's not. You can value the kapahaka group as much as you're valuing his grade in science. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. Cheers, Catherine. Nathan McCarty-Wallace, educator and founder of X Factor Education. And remember, on our webpage, the 9 to Noon webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash 9 to Noon, in the little collections pile, there's a, there's a um, little sort of um, bar just under the picture of your host that has really useful things to click on, like episodes where all our episodes are archived. Uh, there's a search button. There's also a collections button, and we keep a lot of our parenting segments in there. They're very, very popular. You'll find uh, some of Nathan's previous ones in there as well. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.